to make. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. It's great to be with you guys again for this Wednesday night. Last Wednesday, I was in California and in a missionary conference, Radiance, and they specialize in reaching unreached people, where if you have this calling, if you really think that God has called you to be a missionary, here in Norfolk Bible, we will train you. We would put you through an Excel internship, which is focused on missions. Basically, all the things that I did for these past few years, you would do the same, except mission-focused. After that, the elders would approve that, you know, you're, you're, we're going to send you. We would send you to either or Radius or Ethnos. Uh, um, and basically what they do is they train me to go to unreached peoples and learn their language and learn how to write down their language to be able to write a Bible. And eventually they go and they become very familiar with the language to the point where they just learn the language first, learn the language first. So then maybe two years down the road, after the buy-in that they have with these tribes, they're able to present a clear gospel to them. And after they present a clear gospel and God starts to move and save people, they're trained on how to train elders, train the pastor that's going to be there, and plant a local church. So that's amazing is that what God is doing and what God calls every one of us to do. And if you have a desire in your heart, if missions is in your mind, don't ignore it. You're still young. Let's pray about it. Talk to your friends about it. Talk to me about it. I would love to know if you're interested in missions and we can guide you in the right direction to see if that's something that really you want to do. Okay. Do you know the story of the Trojan horse and the battle between Sparta and Troy? How many of you have heard that story before? How many of you have watched the movie Troy before? Okay. It's a war that was waged between the 12th and the 13th century BCE. Uh, Queen Helen of Sparta was abducted by the Trojans, that's by the prince Paris, and to secure her return, the Spartans sent a thousand ships to Troy to rescue Helen. Uh, these two armies would fight for ten years. Ten years they would fight. And one morning it appeared that the Greeks had retreated. They left behind a huge wooden horse as a gift so the Trojans could sacrifice to their goddess Athena. The Trojans, they believed that they had outmatched their rivals, their enemies, because they had a fortified city and they were just better. So they thought, yeah, we finally won. They finally admitted his defeat. And we will take this Trojan horse and we will sacrifice to the goddess Athena. So they took the Trojan horse inside there and guarded the wall. The night came by and out of it was a hidden compartment where some of the Spartan warriors were secretly hidden. And they used the, the cover of the night to open the gates. And the Spartans, who were nearby, went inside and conquered the city and left Troy in ruins. See, the Trojans thought that their superior strength was what got the Spartans out of there. Ten years of fighting is long, right? What did the Spartans do? The Spartans allowed them to think that they had won. They tricked them. Little did they know they had a secret plan. So today, we will read about Pharisees. And they have a plan to kill the Son of God. And just like the Trojans, who thought they had won, so the Pharisees would think that they had won when they crucified the Son of God. However... Little did they know that a sovereign God 
was over the eternal plan of redemption. And just like the Spartans with the Trojans, God allowed the Pharisees to think for a moment that they crucified Jesus and that they were victorious. But in God's glorious plan of salvation, Jesus would be resurrected on the third day, saving humanity from their sins. Let's turn to Matthew 26 and read today's passage, verses 1 through 5. And again, I always like to say this. When I read the Word of God, this is what you need to be paying attention to the most. When you see slides up there that cross-reference the Word of God, I really want you to read God's Word. I can say a lot of things, but it will not change your heart. It will not transform you. It will not sanctify you. Only God's Word can do that. God has the power to do that through His Word He's given. So when we read, let's be reverent of what we're reading. And when we use a cross-reference, let's reverence that have reverence towards the scripture that's there, and let's read it. If you want to follow along your Bible, you can. But it, when it's God's word, it's important because this is what changes us. Amen? Amen? Okay. The word of God says, When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise the riots might occur among the people. So because Matthew just mentioned that there's two days left for the Passover, I want us to go back in context to see where we are right now in Matthew chapter 26. I want to go back to the chronological order of the Passover week. We start Sunday, that was chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, when we learned about Jesus' triumph entry into Jerusalem. This is where the people were putting coats on the road, they were putting palm trees, that's why it's called Palm Sunday, and everyone was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, God of Most High, our Savior has come, Hosanna, King of David. Why? Jesus had just resurrected his friend Lazarus a couple of days ago, people were talking about it, and when they see Jesus coming to Jerusalem, it's an uproar, and remember the Passover, a lot of people were there. Josephus, the Jewish historian, estimates about 2.5 million up to people in Jerusalem during this time. So a lot of people are hearing about Jesus, and a lot of people are there in that moment. And that was Sunday. Then we go to Monday, chapter 21, verses 12 through 46. This is where Jesus gets angry at the religious leaders and throws the tables and throws them out of the temple. Remember that? That's Sunday. Oh, sorry, that was Monday. So Sunday, triumphal entry. Monday was Jesus' anger in the temple. Now we come to Tuesday. Tuesday was a long day of ministry for Jesus. That's when he had uh, the debate between the Pharisees that they came at him. They were asking him, so do we pay taxes or not? So what about the resurrection? If I have six wives and I die, who's, and the brother comes and he dies, who's going to end up with her in heaven? And which is the greatest commandment of them all? They're trying to get Jesus, right? And then chapter 23, 24 was... Okay, you guys came at me, now I'm going to come at you. And he came at them hard, right? Remember the seven woes of the scribes and Pharisees? That was chapter 24. And then chapter 25 happens at night, the beginning of chapter 24 and 25, where it's the Olivet Discourse, where he, had, he was uh, debating with the Pharisees, he went against the Pharisees, left, then went to the Mount of Olives and had his disciples. And with his disciples, he was talking about time of the tribulation and the end of times and to be ready for Christ's return. 
We know that in chapter 24, we learn about the seven-year tribulation, the second coming, the parables of the fig tree, illustration of days of Noah and the two servants. And then in chapter 25, we learn that we need to be ready for Christ's coming with the parable of the ten virgins, parable of the talents, and that we needed to not to be sheep and not goats, which was Matt's message on Sunday. So we find ourselves today in one, on Wednesday. Passover is going to be on Friday. We're on Wednesday of the Passover week. And what happens on Wednesday? We find ourselves Jesus' prediction of his death, the plot of the Pharisees to kill him. Next lesson, we're going to see how Mary anoints Jesus with expensive perfume. And then the lesson after that, we're going to learn about how Judas takes the bride to make sure that they're able to arrest Jesus secretly. That's Wednesday. But today, we will specifically look at two scenes concerning Jesus' crucifixion. Two scenes concerning Jesus' crucifixion. The first scene we're going to look at is Jesus predicts his death, and that's going to be verses 1 through 2. The second scene we'll see later is going to be the religious leaders plot Jesus' death, verses 3 to 5. The theme, as we read and study God's word together, what I want you to have in your mind as we meditate on these precious words are... Praise God. Praise God's sovereignty in his plan for salvation. Praise God's sovereignty in his plan for salvation. Let's begin with the first thing. Jesus predicts his death, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 states, When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples. These words refer to the Olivet Discourse he just gave to his disciples in chapters 24 and 25. We just went there. In Matthew 24, 3, if you remember, it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of age? And then Jesus says, Let me tell you. And then chapters 24 and 25 occur. Now he's going to continue to address his disciples in this specific moment. He just gave them pretty dire news. He, he, it was a lot of things that Jesus told them, right? It was like, it ends up times, beware, if you're caught in the field, just run for the mountains. It's going to be a time of horror. And instead of Jesus comforting them, comforting them, saying, hey, but don't worry about it, it's going to be okay. As soon as he finishes these words, he's going to tell them other news that might cause them to be worried or anxious. Anxious. What was this news that Jesus was going to tell them or told them? In verse 2, it says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. See, there's a lot of information packed in this just one verse. So I need you to bear with me so we won't pass over any of them. Okay. The first truth that this verse uh, explains is that God strategically ordained for Christ to be crucified during Passover. God strategically chose for Christ to be crucified on Passover. So as we discussed earlier, we're on Wednesday. Two days later, on Friday, the lambs will be slaughtered to celebrate Passover. And that's what the Jews did and do. 
On Friday, we slaughter a lamb in honor and remembrance of Exodus. Remember in Exodus that Moses told them to sacrifice a lamb and make sure that the blood of that lamb is on your doorpost so that the angel of death, as he's coming for the firstborn of all of Egypt, that angel of death will pass over the blood when he sees it on a doorpost. So there's going to be a lot of lambs being slaughtered and sacrificed on Friday. How many days does the Passover festival usually take? Anybody know? A week, seven days. Good. And it's celebrating God passing over the houses of the Israelites because of the blood of the lamb, which culminated in the people's exodus from Egypt. They're celebrating their their final liberation of Egypt, from Egypt. Now, in two days, the Jews will be celebrating Passover, but also the Son of Man will be crucified. God, Jesus, will be crucified. See, what better time to fulfill God's plan of redemption on Passover? The Son of Man will give up His life and blood for eternal protection of hell. Look at what John chapter 1, verses 28, 29 says. This is when um, Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day when he saw Jesus, he's talking about John, coming to him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For what? Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. See, there's no coincidences for God. He perfectly planned the death of Christ to be on Passover so that this sacrifice would last eternity. His blood would protect us from our sin, would cleanse us from our sin so that everyone who has faith in Christ and repents from their sins will have eternal life. And hell will pass over their lives. The second truth that we find in this verse is that Christ is God and man at the same time. Jesus is referring himself, refers to himself as the Son of Man. He is claiming deity. He is 100% man and 100% God. Does anybody know the theological term for what that's called? We've said it multiple times. Hypostatic union, yes. Hypostatic union. Now, everyone, when you see the Son of Man reference, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Says, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man, Christ. And he is saying the Son of Man will be crucified. Now, Jesus had to be 100% God and 100% man. Why? Only God can suffer the wrath of God. Only God can suffer the wrath of God. And that's what, now, he's, Jesus was God, therefore he can suffer the wrath of his Father 
and he had to be the perfect human to be the perfect mediator in the sacrifice. See, he was the perfect lamb, sinless, never sinned once, perfect sacrifice before God, which he gave himself up for humanity. So this God-man, the Bible tells us, would be turned over into custody. Turned over means that, to, to be in custody. He'd be crucified, which is a shameful death of being nailed to the cross. So what do you mean, Alejandro? God allowed his son to die on a shameful cross to save humanity from their sins? Yes. Yes, he did. And guess what? Another part that focuses on the deity of Christ is the fact that he's able to prophesy what was to happen. Question. What number is this that Jesus predicts his death to his disciples? How many times has this happened in Cleveland history? Who says this is the first time he predicts his death? Who says this is the second time he predicts his death to his disciples? Who says this is the third time? Raise your hand. Is this the third time? Who says fourth? Who says fifth? Okay. It's the fourth time. The fourth time that Jesus predicts his death. Now, why? Why does this matter to you and to me and to the readers reading this? Because Jesus said, and everything that Jesus said would happen, happened. Giving him authority that he was the Son of God who was able to see into the future. Now, this prophesying was divine. And even though Christ, when he came and became man, he voluntarily abstained from using his divinity. He did use his divinity, but only at the will of his father. At the will of his father, God used his divinity. And one of those wills of the father was to prophesy his own death to his disciples. And so that you and me can read and say, this is the God-man Jesus who said he was going to be crucified, and in fact it did, who said he was going to raise on the third day, and in fact he did, he is who he said he would be. He said, he is who he said he would be. Now, why is that important? Just a little quick side note. Because if he is who he said he would be, then everything that he said was true. Everything that he said was true. And if everything that he said was true, he validated many things. What did Jesus use all the time when it came to attacking Satan when he was tempted? What did he use to attack Satan? Yes, George. Scripture. He used scripture specifically from where? We call it what? The Old Testament. What about when Jesus said to, says to the Pharisees, have you not read? Where is he referring to? The Old Testament. So by Jesus saying... I will die. I will be raised from the dead. I am the Son of God. It happened. You can affirm that the Old Testament is true because God said it was true because He affirmed it. He also affirms the New Testament. How does He affirm that? John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, talking to His disciples, His apostles, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The majority of the Bible that we have was written by the apostles. The Gospels were written by the apostles that were reminded by the Holy Spirit of all of Jesus' ministry to put it down so we can read it today as this way. So we've gone over this 
particular verse, ordains Christ's death at the Passover, not a coincidence. It talks about the deity of Christ. The third key that this verse talks about is that the crucifixion of Jesus does not catch God by surprise. Does not catch God by surprise. Nothing catches God by surprise because He's almighty. He's all-knowing. He's all-sovereign. He's all-powerful. In fact, as soon as man falls, as soon as man sins, God has a plan of salvation right there and then. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God knew from the beginning that man would sin. He created us knowing that we would sin. He created us knowing that he would have to send his son. Why, you might ask, for his glory. Plain and simple. For his glory, God is God. He does as he pleases. And all we got to do is thank him for his plan of salvation. His sovereign plan of salvation from the beginning of time it was there. And we should praise him for that. You see, look how powerful he is. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose for what to be conformed according to His image. God does not cause people to sin. Know that. He does not cause people to sin. You find that in James. But He is so powerful that He can orchestrate the consequences of our actions to the point where his perfect love and kindness and whatever plan that you're living right now, whatever plan this the world has lived till today is the best plan ever because God is a loving God, he's a holy God, he's a perfect God. And he uses all of that for the good of those who love him. You might ask, well, why do, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? That's, that's why I can ask wrong. There's no good people. There's none righteous, not even one. We all fall short of the glory of God. The bad things that happen to humanity is a just result of our disobedience before God. That is the truth. But you see, God used the greatest evil in the history of humanity. The killing of God, His Son. And what did He do with that? He made it into the greatest good. He gave us all salvation to those who repent and believe. See how God functions in his mind are not like we think his ways are higher than our ways. Only God can do that because he's love and holy and he's sovereign. Look what Isaiah says in 40, chapter 46, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, says the Lord. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 to 38. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? But you might say, God allows certain things to happen, especially bad ones. Yes, He even allows the worst things to happen, the killing of His Son for the greatest good of the salvation of the world. The last key that we find in this verse 
talked about the obedience of Christ. John Calvin mentions that Christ knew what was about to happen. He knew that it needed to happen, and he did so voluntarily. Look at what Matthew chapter 26 says in verse 50. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. This is talking to Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were, were, were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, meaning 12,000 angels. And then he says this, How then will Scripture be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Guys, the crucifixion of Christ is no accident. It was planned from the beginning of time. John 10, 18 says, Jesus saying, no one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So a lot of truths packed in just one verse. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So this concludes scene number one. Now let's move on to scene number two. Religious leaders plot Jesus' death. Verses three to five. Let's read verse three. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. Then here means consequently or soon after. So soon after, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. What happened? These people got together, and what did they do? Well, we're going to look at it in verse 4. But let's talk about who were the chief priests. Well, the priests that held a high place among other priests, they were the representatives representative chosen to enter the holy, holiest place once a year. That was the high priest, Caiaphas. He was commissioned, usually came from the blood of Aaron. This wasn't the time anybody can do the office, uh, the, I guess, appointed to the office of high priest. Who were the elders? So think of it this way. They were older people in the community that were involved in religious and social decisions and were usually wealthy, right? And the elders, along with the high priest, they came together in a courtyard. The Greek for courtyard is an open-air entrance area attached, with a leading, attached and leading to a house or a building. And it was not just any courtyard. It was the courtyard of the high priest, Caiaphas. He was the high priest of Israel, one that had a lot of honor and respect. His real name was Joseph. He, played, he replaced Simon, son of Temis, in the high priest around 25 AD. After about two years of Jesus' resurrection, he was succeeded by Vicarius, governor of Syria. And this is what the Greek lexicon, uh, Didas, uh, stated, that he was unable to bear his disgrace, and perhaps the stings of conscience of the murder of Christ, he killed himself about A.D. 35. That's Caiaphas for you. The high priest that people respected and was one of the most vicious accusers of Christ when it came to sentencing to his death. 
Now, what was what was going on this meeting, in this meeting was like a subcommittee meeting, and they determined, guys, Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the Messiah. He is not the Savior that we expected. We have to formulate a plan of action to seize and kill him. That is what this meeting was about. They saw the miracles. They saw how Jesus spoke with authority. They saw how Jesus cast demons out. They saw him heal the sick. They saw nature submit and bow down, tremble. Uh, thunder trembles at his presence, right? And they still refused to believe. Why? Well, it wasn't the Savior they were expecting. They wanted a Savior that would deliver them from Roman oppression. From their physical pain and suffering, they could care less of a spiritual kingdom. They could care less of their spiritual condition. The last thing they wanted was to be lorded over. They loved their false religious system of what? Well, I can sin here and there, and if I do these good things, then God will forgive me, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go to church on Sunday, and I'll read my Bible, but then I'll continue sinning because I have no remorse, and hopefully when I die, there's a, a balance where there's more good than bad, and God will see that I did more good than bad, and he'll accept me into heaven. See, that's a selfish way of looking at salvation. The easy way of looking at salvation is Christ did it already. Christianity is the only religion that you don't do anything except repent and believe. Every other religion in the world says you have to do. You have to be a good person. You have to live this certain life. You got to do five pillars. You got to follow this example. And Christianity is the only one that says, "No, no, Christ did it all already." With the, with, with the, with the uh, with, not the consequence, but with I guess the only I'm, I'm got this. I'm, not, I'm here. But the only thing that requires you is for him to be your Lord. And people don't like that. They rather be their own Lord and do their own thing and find their own way of salvation and repent and believe in Jesus and have put your faith only in him. But I have to make him Lord? Yes, that's how it goes. That's how salvation works. Could this, could this be some of you today? Because Jesus is not the Lord you're looking for, you reject him, just like the Pharisees rejected him. See, you want him to be a Lord that maybe allows you to satisfy your own pleasures and desires of the flesh. You want your Lord over your life, and you're not interested in submitting to Jesus and recognizing the hell-deserving sin before God. So, let's just be honest. There are no good people. Just know that. We all fall short of the glory of God. You will never be able to save yourself. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and me could never live. He was storing up all that righteousness for us. He was the perfect human mediator, like I said before. The Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He died a shameful death on the cross. He resurrected on the third day. And right now, he's at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible is clear and says that if you put your trust and faith only in him for salvation and repent from your sins and turn away from your sin, the Bible says that he's not only willing but able to forgive you. Don't be like the Pharisees in today's story that they saw Jesus. They saw his miracle. They saw his divinity. 
and they still refused to believe because they didn't want to be lorded over. Don't be like those Pharisees. Don't pass an opportunity to make Jesus your Lord. It is the best thing you could ever do in your entire life because His mercy are new each day. His grace is new each day. His love and kindness is everlasting. But let's go back to that meeting. Why were they meeting? The following verse lets us know. Verse 4. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. They came together to think of a way to arrest and kill him. They premeditated this meeting to see the best way to seize him, which in the Greek here is to take him to custody. And the way they were going to do this is by in a stealth way, in a deceiving way. Now, I've always asked the question, why didn't you just hire an assassin? Would it have been easier? Just hire an assassin, kill him. If he causes so much trouble, just kill him. Why go through the trouble of arresting him privately and then accusing him in front of the court? Just kill him privately. First of all, that's not God's will. You didn't plan that way. Second of all, we're talking about the Pharisees here. You remember the Pharisees? They want a clean conscience. So what do they want to do? Let's arrest him so we can try to accuse him falsely. And then the people will see how right we are. They'll want to kill him. Hey, we're not going to be guilty before God. That's sick. But that's the human heart. That is the human heart, especially of a Pharisee. Of those who can try to manipulate God. So you can still think you're a good person. Remember when I said that God is sovereign over all and that the fall of man was no surprise to God? This meeting of the minds was no surprise to God either. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Open your Bibles. I want you to read this one from your Bibles. Psalm chapter 2. Right. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They're talking about this meeting. They're talking about all the times the Jews, the Pharisees, trying to plot Jesus' death. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. See, God planned it from the beginning. God was in control from the beginning. This was, it, was, it was not by accident. This was prophesied a hundred years before these evil plans were plotted. They think they can kill the Son of Man. Laugh at that. This is why we have to praise God for His sovereignty in His plan for salvation. He created man knowing that we would sin, and He also knew that He would send His Son. He planned even the death of His Son to save us sinners to be with Him eternally. 
And guys, this idea of killing Jesus is not new. How many times do you think the Bible mentions that they try to kill Jesus in the Gospels? He says one time. Other than the crucifixion, that doesn't count. He says two times. Three times? Four times? Well, recorded three times. Could have been more. The first one, Herod. Remember him? He felt threatened. Chapter 20, uh, 2, verse 16. We don't have time to read them, and I didn't put them there because I knew we were probably running out of time. What about when Jesus finished talking in the synagogue, when he's reading Isaiah, and he tells the people, and this prophecy is fulfilled in me. What happened? And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the, of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Or what about when he healed the cripple in the pool of Bethsaida on the Sabbath? For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, all these attempts to kill Jesus didn't come into fruition because it wasn't God's will. Look at what Carter states. Only the sovereign grace of God could have brought Jesus to the cross. No human power could have accomplished it apart from God's will. And no human power could now prevent it because it has now, it was now God's plan. Another question to ask. Why? Why do they want to kill him? They were tired of Jesus exposing their hypocrisy to the crowd. They were threatened politically. The only answer to their problem, as if they were the, as a Pharisee, was to kill him. Look at what John chapter 11, verses 47 to 48 says. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's why they wanted to kill the Son of Man. So when were they going to accomplish this? Not during Passover. God forbid there would be a riot. Verse 5. But they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Hundreds and thousands of people were there. They were excited at this point. They knew that there was a Messiah coming. He was the Hosanna, the son of King of David. They all had in their mind that there was a, a, a physical liberator. Anything against Jesus would have created a riot. They were like, no, we're not, we can't do this. They had to play with their wisdom. Jesus already called them multiple times out when they asked him, under what authority do you do this? And he said, okay, I'll ask you a question. If you answer, I'll let you know. What is John the Baptist of God or of men? And the Jews were like, well, if we say one way, so, and they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as prophet. They fear these riots. So that's why he wasn't going to be during Passover. But again, they think that they're trying to kill Jesus, but God has a plan regardless of what the Jews or the Pharisees are doing. God will die in two days on Passover Friday. And they found the perfect solution, which we'll learn about in two lessons from now. Judas Iscariot would hand him over secretly. Or they can secretly try to accuse him and kill him without the people knowing, without a riot occurring. So as I... As we wrap up today's lesson, how can we apply these grateful, these great truths, these awesome truths to our lives? Number one, praise that God had a plan of salvation for us since the beginning of time. 
thank God that this did not catch him by surprise, that it was not a surprise, and that he had a plan for our sin, because if not, we would all be in hell, headed toward that way, because that's what we deserve when we sin against God. Praise him, because only he can orchestrate all things, and bad, good and bad, for those who love him and are conformed to his image. This is one adoration. You can, you know how we say, well, how do you pray acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and uh, supplication? This is one way you can pray his adoration this week. Thanking him for his sovereign love and his sovereignty and salvation. Lastly, for this point, regardless of any circumstance you're going through, good or bad, let's react like Job did when everything was taken away from him. Job 121 says, he said, this is after his family died, his, his, his riches were taken, his house was burned, all that. He said, he said, naked I am from my mother, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Second application, trust in God's sovereignty. We are to praise God's sovereignty, and we are to trust in God's sovereignty. God is perfect, and He is also love. That means that out of all the possible circumstances you can be living right now, the one that you are currently living is the one that God has deemed good for you. Therefore, do not worry about anything else except to trust in God and know that He's sovereign over every circumstance of your life. And I'll leave you with this gold nugget that I would memorize if you haven't done so. Every time you're anxious to meditate and renew your mind with this truth, Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, His work is perfect for all, not some, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for being all-powerful. Thank you because you are sovereign even in our salvation. You provided a way out for our sins. You created us knowing, Lord, that we would sin against you, and you would send your Son to die on the cross for us. And thank you, O oh God, for your love. You are love. You are just. You are holy. You are perfect. You are good. Thank you, Jesus, for, for dying on the cross for us and for being obedient to the Father. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling in us, allowing us to be sanctified through your precious words that we have read. Let us always trust in you no matter what we're living through right now, God. No matter the circumstance, how dire it might be, let us, our eyes focus on you and trust in you because you are in control and you are the God of the universe. Let us make you big and let us be small, Father, before you. We love you, we worship you, in your name we pray. Amen.